Good morning, North Shore. You guys doing well? Blessed. Thank you, Bruce. Um, <laughs> not sure exactly how to start out this morning, to be totally honest with you guys. Um, on the way here, um, I was driving, obviously, um, a little over an hour, almost an hour and a half ago. And I'm on I-5, I'm heading south, so I'm just passing 41st, and then I'm on my way to 526, where I'm just gonna, you know, cut in. And a, a white car uh, doesn't pull in front of me, it just pulls into me, like this. And so I jerk my wheel really hard to the right, and he immediately backs off. Well, then I realized I'd overcompensated, so then I jerked the wheel to the left, and then, I started to spin on I-5 and I went around at least once across a couple lanes and I'm, here's the barrier on the side of the road, I'm approaching that right now and I'm facing the traffic that's coming my direction and I'm just waiting for an impact and then my car stops and it's not running anymore but nobody hit me, and I didn't hit the barrier, and I-5 stops, and I turn the car back on, and I drive here. And I'm feeling a bit vulnerable <laughs> right about now, and weak, <laughs> um, and uh, a lot of things, but grateful to be alive, Grateful to um, have not been injured at all whatsoever. Grateful for God's hand of protection. And grateful that actually that I'm in this place because it actually leads very well <laughs> into our message today. I was not expecting that, but, um, but God had his plans and um, so we are going to jump into that. And um, I would just appreciate your, your prayers if I seem a bit distracted. Um, in fact, let's, let's pray right now. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for life. We recognize how fragile it is, how uh, fleeting life can be. Um, how unexpectedly uh, things happen to us and around us and help us to learn, help us to grow, help us to, to trust in you for healing, for, um, for grace and kindness, to experience your love and your mercy, to um, be thankful for every breath that we have on this earth to praise your name, to hug those around us a little bit tighter, to love those who you've put in our life more than we did yesterday. Thank you for the opportunities that you continue to give us to make this world a better place and to be better people for your glory 
and for your sake, Jesus. Thank you that you gave it all so that we could have life and have it abundantly as you promise. We just pray, God, that you give us ears to hear this morning and eyes to see whatever it is you want us to experience. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Change us, mold us, shape us, make us who you want us to be individually and as the church. In your son's name. Amen. <laughs> um, so I, I wanted to show you this, va- this vase, <laughs> this vase. Um, as we saw, as we see, um, a broken vase. In uh, Japan, there's an art form, actually, where they take a broken vase like that. It's called kintsugi. Kint means gold, sugi means mend. And they take a shattered clay vessel like this one, and they put it back together again, but they put gold. They fill all the cracks, all the imperfections with gold. It actually makes it stronger than it was before. Now, we could have done that, but that would have blown our entire budget here at the church. So, obviously we didn't do that with gold. But the commentator of the video that I watched as I was learning about this, um, this Japanese art form, he said this. He said, in 80% of the artwork around the world from music to poetry, to paintings, the impetus of these creations, what drives them into being is brokenness, pain, trauma. In their beauty and passion, the cry of humanity can be heard. And if you listen closely, you might just hear the promise of God's restoration being woven like that gold through the expression of the lament. I don't know if it's 80%, but I know a lot of songs, a lot of poetry that come from brokenness, from pain, from trauma, and paintings, and sculptures, etc., etc. It just opened my eyes to how we respond to things that are broken, how we express ourselves. Today I have the privilege of introducing us to a new series, as Pastor Scott was talking about, Rebuilding After Brokenness. And we're gonna take uh, the book of Nehemiah to do just that. And I have the privilege this morning of sharing with you not just chapter one, but also a bit of an introduction to to give us some context, to give us some history, to give us an idea of why Nehemiah is acting the way he is. What is this situation with Jerusalem? And in order for us to do that, I'm just gonna jump right in with you guys and read the first chapter of Nehemiah to get us started. So if you have your Bible, um, if you're watching online, you can pull up your app or whatever. Um, Join us right now. Nehemiah chapter one. 
The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken, broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you are dispersed, be under the farthest skies, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. You know, as we read this together, or we read this together, some of us maybe for the first time, you might have asked yourself, why or what is this exile? Why has Jerusalem been destroyed? Why is Nehemiah so upset about this? And to understand why Jerusalem is in shambles and Nehemiah's response to all of this, we need to take a bit of a journey back in time. We need to look at a highlight reel, or in this case, maybe a low light reel of the nation of Israel and how it got here. Nehemiah comes to Jerusalem from Persia about 443 BC, but our story actually begins almost 500 years earlier. When the nation of Israel is divided into the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, due in large part because of the sins of King Solomon. Remember that guy? You know, the guy that had maybe a, a few too many wives? Um, and in the process, he lost his first love, Jehovah, 
and he began to follow other gods. We can read about this in 1 Kings 11. And with the nation of Israel continuing to sin and not listening to God and not following his commands, various prophets begin to show up and begin to speak against what Israel's doing, about the consequences of their action. Jonah had a whale of a story when he preached to Nineveh, didn't he? Amos predicted exile for the northern kingdom. Hosea, the weeping prophet, told of the destruction of the northern kingdom. Micah and Isaiah, these are all prophets, right? Micah and Isaiah both predicted the Assyrian invasion of Judah, and Isaiah foretold that Babylon would be God's agent of destruction for Jerusalem, even though it was 100 years in the future at this point. The destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians and that resulting exile that we just read about where King Nebuchadnezzar hauled away the Jewish inhabitants was not a surprise. They were repeatedly warned that this would happen. In fact, in about 628 BC, Jeremiah began to warn them about Jerusalem's fall. For 20 years, he warned them. Can you imagine that? 20 years, it's like a broken record. Yeah, yeah, we know. Of course, that's gonna happen. But they don't do anything about it. And so the first captives are taken in about 606 BC. And then again in 597, a second group is taken, including the prophet Ezekiel. And he continues to prophesy about the imminent destruction of Jerusalem, which finally falls with the temple to the Babylonians in 586 BC. You know, and it's important to note that during this time of prediction of doom and destruction by all these prophets, many of them were also promising an end to the captivity and redemption and restoration as the Jews repent of their grievous sins. Jeremiah predicted a 70-year captivity in Babylon in chapter 25 of Jeremiah, but he also promises a restoration in chapter 30 and 31, and a new covenant in chapter 31 and 33. In fact, he says this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah in those days, and at that time I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. And he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved. And Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Jeremiah 33, 14 through 16. My friends, there is so much hope in that passage. The Messiah is coming. Hope is coming. Restoration is coming. But for now, they need to live out the consequences of their sin and the actions against God. So in 586, Jerusalem and the temple is destroyed. 50 years later, in 536 BC, Daniel prays to God. Remember, he was also taken in the exile 
with his buddies, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. Remember that story? So he's praying to God to end this captivity that he knew had been predicted already by Jeremiah, right? The 70 years of captivity. And Daniel takes it upon himself to confess the sins of the nation and to plead with God to keep his promise about the captivity ending. And God shows him much that's gonna happen in the future in chapter nine of Daniel. So about this time, King Cyrus, he's, he's, from per, he's a Persian king. He's now conquered Babylon, right? Which you thought couldn't be done. Well, he conquers Babylon and he begins to repatriate the people who had been exiled to Babylon and they begin to return to their own country, including Jerusalem, including Israel. 50,000 Jews return at this time. The temple foundation is laid, but the work ceases after opposition from the Samaritans, which we can read about in Ezra. And how interesting is it that another 500 years go by and Jesus is speaking with a woman at the well who is a Samaritan. She's like, why are you speaking to me? You guys, people don't forget when things happen like this, right? There was animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. This is just one example they stop work on the temple. But then they resume building the temple, and in 458 BC, Ezra leads another group to Jerusalem, teaching the law of Moses and reforming and restoring their worship. And then finally, as I mentioned before, in 443 BC, Nehemiah comes to Jerusalem from Persia. And that's when we began the story of Nehemiah chapter one. Imagine almost a hundred years have gone by since King Cyrus had basically released everybody and said, go home. And if you could be standing with Nehemiah in that moment and you could have flown a drone over the city of Jerusalem, you would have seen a wasteland. Very few people no bustling marketplace, no laughter of children in the streets, no schools are in session. A rebuilt temple, but little else. Is it any wonder that your friend Nehemiah would be on his knees weeping and repenting for his country, his family, and even himself? He knew at least some of the history that we just went through together. And his heart was broken. First point, if you're writing in your notes today, is the posture of repentance. We see this so clearly in Nehemiah. He heard from his brother and the few people that were with him, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and the gates are destroyed by fire. My friends, a hundred years had gone by. People had been returning home, but nothing had been done. This was God's city. 
This was a very, very important place for worship, for the Jews, for their identity. Jerusalem, we read about it many, many times in the Bible, don't we? And so Nehemiah hears these words and he sits down and he weeps and he mourns for days and he continues fasting and praying before the God of heaven. My friends, have you ever in your life been in a situation where you've been that passionate, that adamant about something like this? Praying, weeping, mourning, fasting. My friends, that's the posture of repentance. It's a posture of humility. It's recognizing who God is. And it's allowing for God to do some of his deepest work in and through us having that posture of repentance. The opposite of this might look like this. Isaiah 45, 9 says, Woe to those who quarrel with their maker, those who are nothing but potsherds among the potsherds on the ground. Does the clay say to the potter, What are you making? Does your work say the potter has no hands? My friends, as we've discovered, clay pots, clay pottery, it's very fragile, especially when it's been hardened. It's delicate, it's easily broken, and even shattered. I had an opportunity 2007 and also in 2009 to go to Al the country of Albania which, believe it or not, is, is very close to Italy and Greece. It's right in the middle. We don't hear much about Albania. But it, through biblical times, um, had history there. And people were living in caves there, and I happened to visit a cave there that had been inhabited off and on for thousands of years. And there was a fire ring in this cave, and as we looked around this fire ring, there was pot shards there was literally, it was deep. I couldn't even dig down far enough. The pot charts just were everywhere and they just went down into the soil. My friends, people used to carry water and other things in clay pots. But if you set this down too hard against a rock, it broke. If it got bumped and knocked over, it broke. Now you could maybe mend it a bit with some pitch or something, but eventually it was unusable. So it just laid on the ground and it was just ground into dust or became very small pieces, right? So delicate, so easily broken. And yet a clay pot on a potter's wheel is soft and it's malleable. It's easily molded and shaped. My friends, a posture of repentance allows us to be softened. It allows us to be malleable in the hand of the potter, the potter who created us. 
once again. That is a posture of repentance, allowing ourselves to be vulnerable, allowing ourselves Yeah. To be soft in God's hands. To be shaped and molded. The posture of repentance. Second thing I want to talk about today is the process. The process of repentance. Nehemiah talks about this. Starting in verse 6, he says, Let your ears be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. Here we go. Confessing the sins of the people of Israel which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. The process of repentance includes confession. Having that posture where we're willing, where we're vulnerable before our God, where we're listening where we're soft, our hearts are soft before him, and then we confess as he brings things to our mind. I'll never forget, in 1997, my wife and I were on staff with a group called Campus Crusade for Christ, large evangelical organization, and we were at a staff conference, 1997, Fort Collins in uh, at CSU, Colorado State University, if you've ever been there. They have a huge auditorium, not quite as big as the silver tips, but it's getting there. It was quite large. In fact, it had to house about 5,000 staff who had gathered that summer from all around the world. We had about a seven-day conference together. My friends, the first night we hear a speaker, her name is Nancy Lee DeMoss. You know what she talks about? Repentance. The need for us to repent. Now, my friends, on the outside, we were a pretty sharp organization. I mean, we had lots of stats you guys would be super proud of. I mean, it was, we were a great organization. But you know what? We had issues. We had sin. Individually and corporately. So when she got off the stage, you know what happened? People started lining up behind the microphone she'd used. Staff, people just like me, lining up behind the microphone, and they started to confess their sins to 5,000 people. And as they confessed, their friends, people close to them, their teammates came up to them and hugged them and prayed for them, and they walked off stage or they walked into a corner and they just gathered and they just prayed and then someone else would speak, and then someone else would speak, and then someone else would speak. It was 11 o'clock at night. Whoever was running this whole thing came up and said, hey guys, there was still a line. Um, How about we come back to this tomorrow morning? Eight o'clock, okay, we'll come back to this. Eight o'clock, Sam and I showed up, here's the line. 
My friends, they had an agenda. They'd paid for speakers to come in. They had all kinds of things planned. I had the program, I know that. For six days, you know what we did? For six days, day and night, people lined up and they confessed their sins. And our organization was never the same because of the vulnerability of the people that I worked with who looked so put together from the outside, had such great statistics, and yet were broken and needed a savior to meet them in their darkest hour. And they did this with 5,000 other fellow staff. First John 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the promise of God. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's his promise. Which leads me to the third point, the promises of repentance. James 4, 6. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Think about the proud, hardened, easily broken, shattered. And yet the humble with humility, coming to God, soft-hearted, being able to be shaped and molded in his beautiful hands. One of my favorite um, portions of scripture I want to read to you right now, it's Isaiah 61, verses one through four. I want to, the reason I'm going on my phone right now is because I want to read the NIV version. Um, just says it a little different, that's all. Verses one through four, it says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. And it goes on to say, they will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. My friends, it reminds me of what God did. And we'll read the rest of the story in the weeks to come about the book of Nehemiah and how God uses this man and a small group of ordinary people to begin to rebuild the walls and the gates that have been destroyed by fire and the opposition they face and the celebration that they have. But it reminds me of that. Who are they? 
Who are the oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor? Who is going to rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated? Who is going to renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations? The poor, those who mourn, the brokenhearted, the captive. And God's going to provide for those who grieve. He's going to bestow on them a crown of beauty, an oil of joy, and a garment of praise. My, my friends, that is the promises of our God as we humble ourselves before him. Before uh, I conclude here, I want to read um, another passage. This is from Jeremiah 29. We talked about Jeremiah who predicted the 70 years of captivity And he's speaking to the exiles here in Jeremiah 29, starting in verse four. He says, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners, diviners, who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. And then my favorite passages I've said many times. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for wholeness and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile." That is the promise for these people. Even as they're living in this place where they can't speak the language, where the food is gross, where this and that and the other thing is happening, right? They're they're not at home, my friends. They're displaced. But they're told to seek the peace, and this is what it says in the NIV, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. My friends, what's the implications for this for our lives, for our community, for North Shore itself? I'm going to be honest with you guys. My wife and I have been attending here for 29 years. 29 years. And can I tell you, in all honesty, in those 29 years, I've wanted to leave this place more than I can count on these two hands. I've wanted to leave this, this church, and I've had good reasons to, let me tell you, right? Things have happened. I've seen some of my best friends leave here in not good circumstances. But you know what? My, 
incredible wife has said to me every single time I've come home and she says, Mark, is God releasing you from here? And then she asked me the next question. And is he calling you somewhere else? And to both of those questions, I've never had a good answer. Why? Because it was my frustration. It was, it was something about me, actually, that was causing me to just want to leave, just want to get out of a difficult situation, just, just because. You guys, if God, if God is clear, Bruce, I'm, I'm looking at you right now. If God has clearly released you from here and specifically called you somewhere else, as Scott did, we bless you, brother. We bless you. Hallelujah. Go and be God's servant wherever he calls you. Why? Because the world needs you in Indiana. It does. But my friends, for the rest of us, myself included, if we're just discontented, if we're just tired, if we're just disillusioned, if we're just disappointed, and if this place that we call home is just too wet, too cold, too red, or too blue, what can we learn? What can we learn from the exiles in Babylon? Maybe God is calling you and I to be the change that we seek in our communities and to help us as a church, as North Shore Christian Church to rebuild, to restore, to renew the brokenness that we've seen here in Everett and in Marysville and in Snohomish and in Lake Stevens and in Muckleteo and wherever else you happen to live for the sake of the kingdom and for the glory of God for such a time as this. My friend, our communities need us. The last year and a half for many of us has been hell. But we can rebuild. We can renew. We can restore. Why? Because the spirit of God wants to do that in us. He wants to do that in us personally. He wants to do that in us corporately as a church. But we need to start with that posture of repentance to be soft and malleable in our maker's hands and confess what it is in us that needs to change first. First Peter 2, 4, and 5, I love this. It says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. First Peter 2, 4, and 5. I believe God is calling us, his church, living stones, reviving us, just as Nehemiah and the remnant that we're going to read about did when they repurposed the burnt and broken stones in Jerusalem. He's reviving us out of the broken rubble of our lives to be a royal priesthood, offering sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, who is Peter preached in Acts chapter four, was the stone 
that the builders rejected that has become the cornerstone of our salvation. Amen. So my friends, right before um, we finish here, I just have a few questions that I want us to consider for a couple of minutes. First one, if you could change one thing about how you've responded to the events and circumstances surrounding 20 and 21, I know that says 21, but take in the, the last year and a half if you could, right? What would that be and why? Again, it's not so much about them, but what about us? If you could change one thing about how you've responded to the events and circumstances surrounding 2021, what would that be and why? Go back in your mind. Think of the conversations, the Facebook posts, the whatever it is. What would you change? Second question. Can you identify an area of brokenness in your own life that Jesus might want to heal or restore? Can you identify an area of brokenness in your own life that Jesus might want to restore or heal? I want us to either begin or continue, if we've already been doing this, that process of healing, that process of restoration. And I want to remind us of a couple things. The process, the posture and the process of repentance is, is really up to us. That's, that's our job. But the promises that come from repentance, that come from being humble before God, the promises that we've read just a few of, those are up to God. And you can see so much that he wants to bless us. He wants to grow us. He wants us to be his witness in this world and to make a difference. And I believe that he will.